0: This episode of TripCast is brought to you by Blue Cross Blue Shield of Texas, a local company that understands the importance of a healthy community. That's why Blue Cross is a founding sponsor of Million Mile Month, a community challenge to achieve 1 million miles of activity this April. Register today at millionmilemonth.org. Texas
1: talking, y'all.
0: What was that that you said?
1: Texas talking, ah. Gonna hoop your head Hi,
2: this is Holland Taylor, that Yankee gal who had the nerve to write a play about your legendary governor, the great Ann Richards. It's called Ann. We took it all the way to Broadway, and now we're bringing it back to Austin. Please come join me April 6th through May 15th at the ZAC. And now, here's your host...
1: Thank you. This is Ross Ramsey here with the Tribcast for the last week of March. I'm joined by our editor and CEO, Evan Smith. It's hard to believe that it's the last week of March already. It happened very quickly, didn't it? End of quarter one, right? Er- earlier right. this month, some people were voting. We'll yeah, come- we'll, we'll come back to we'll this. We'll come back to that, right. <laughs> reporter Matthew Watkins. Hello. And reporter Kia Collier. Hi. Let's start with who was voting. Um, Rick Perry didn't, apparently.
2: Yeah, what's the deal with that? Well, you know, we were, This may be that rampant voter fraud that Greg Abbott was talking about.
1: We were writing about uh, you know the independent the campaign within the Republican Party for an independent right. candidate if they were unhappy with their nominee. And so we looked at Texas law and it turns out it's really hard to get on the ballot as an independent. You have to do it by May 9th and what you have to do is not vote and get the signatures of about 80,000 registered
2: voters who also didn't vote in the primary what one presumes this is what kinky friedman and carol strayhorn went through in 2006 to get on the ballot in the fall as independent it candidates is. yeah and they actually right?
1: hired people to get signatures and uh you know they it's hard it's hard to do it
2: uh, so we were n- of course it's not around. hard to find people who didn't vote in the primary that in texas is like super easy it is hard to find registered
1: voters and get it all certified and right. all of that ross Perot showed up you know 25 right. years ago with all of his boxes and everything right. so it's hard and we said, you know, besides, Perry probably can't do this because he's a Republican primary voter. And,
2: and he endorsed Cruz, after all. He's traveling around the country. Surely he voted for Ted Cruz.
1: And in the office, you know, there was a conversation about this. And we decided, you know, let's just double check and see if he voted. And so a week later, Terry uh, Langford sent a dollar. She sent four quarters to Fayette County. Perry has bought a place in Round Top and is registered now in Fayette County, Texas. And... She got a response back this week, and the response was James Richard Perry did, in fact, get a mail-in ballot, and no mail-in ballot was returned. This is the sum total of Rick Perry's voting history in Fayette County. He didn't vote in the primaries. Now, his spokesman says he mailed it in. So lost in the
2: mail, but, you know, that's the same as didn't vote. That's what I said about my rent check. That's what everyone says <laughs> about their payment. rent check. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
2: <laughs> I remember some episode at Gilligan's Island a long time ago where Thurston Howell was upset because he didn't send a, a party invitation to somebody else on the island, and it was apparently lost in the mail. You could apparently lose something in the mail if you're talking about six people and an island. The maybe it's not that, it for Maybe right? it's not that surprising that we we, uh, we had a loss in the mail here, but it illustrates uh, – A number of things, uh, beginning uh, with the idea that uh, the conspiracy theory that somehow Rick Perry is trying to gin this up so that he will be the plausible alternative when the convention goes all Chicago 68 on us in Cleveland, that there's some... You know, the, the theory here is that somehow there's a method to his madness, that if Perry this didn't were to, happen by accident.
1: If Perry were to float back up this year, he's going to float back up as a Republican nominated at the convention by some weird mechanism and not as an independent candidate. It's just too hard to get on the ballot. Well, well in fact, so Jonah, Jonah
2: Goldberg, who's a conservative writer for the National Review, has a piece that actually posted today saying, you know, look, one of the scenarios here is that Cruz and – Trump fight this out at the beginning, at the first few ballots, and ultimately Cruz's guys don't want to support Trump and Trump's guys don't want to support Cruz. And so it gets to a place further down the line where they need a plausible alternative. Now, there would need to be a rules change by the RNC to allow somebody who didn't actually run and win a certain number of these contests to be um, the choice. But his point was, if you get down to the Cruz and the Trump people can't get along and are never going to see eye to eye on this and we have to go to another person, that Perry is a more plausible alternative than Kasich, uh, G- Kasich, given the 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 state of the party right now. I, uh, you know, I think you
1: have to scratch a lot of candidates off the list before you get to Rick Perry. They're gonna, you have to get the delegates to go for somebody who lost the last two elections. Yeah, he, you but, know, but, he dropped but, out last. But September. I think you have to it's go just, back before a that. Wrong the with conspiracy
2: that. theory here that somehow Perry deliberately, you know, chunked his mail ballot, you know, dropped it in the in the. The garbage can on the way into the uh, Bud Royer's pie place in Round Rock. I don't actually, I don't actually believe that that happened. Um,
3: so. And the problem is that you have to get on the, if you want to run as an independent, you have to be on the ballot before the convention. So he would run a risk of basically being on the ballot against Cruz, right? If if Cruz well, somehow Well, you're, pulled you're this basically
1: off. saying before we know how this comes out between Cruz and Trump, I'm going right. to jump in as an independent.
2: Yeah, awkward. I don't doubt doubt Perry's support of Cruz. Uh, It may be a strategic uh, indication of support, but I don't doubt his support of Cruz, which, like a lot of other people's support of Cruz, is maybe more against Trump than for Cruz. Um, But I also think who doesn't want to be president, especially if you've run for it twice? (laughs) And if it came down to it and suddenly Perry gets to the convention and and they say, look, we can't have Trump and we can't have Cruz and we need to go off the board, why wouldn't Perry be— a choice, I, if you not know.
1: I, I got to say, the history with Perry is it is what he says it is. And if he says he's not going to do it, yeah. well, And yeah. if
2: he says he sent the mail ballot in, well, yeah, no, he didn't say
1: that. Jeff Miller said that. I right. want to, I want to hear that from the horse himself.
2: But. Look, the, the, where we are, and well, you've not asked this, but it sort of dovetails to where we are in this uh, race. We're uh, less than a week out from Wisconsin. Everybody thinks Wisconsin is going to be the most important contest of the whole cycle, just as everyone that preceded it was the most important contest of the cycle. <laughs> um, it looks like Trump and Cruz are. Tide or close to tide in the polls, maybe Cruz a click Wisconsin, two. right. Ahead in Wisconsin. You know, every week we hear, well, if Trump wins this one, it's over, or it's close to being over, and then he either does or doesn't win it, and then there's some other resetting of the expectations or the conventional wisdom over what's going to happen here. I don't know. I'm sitting here. I don't like to do math particularly, but <laughs> I understand how much 1,237 is. I know that neither of these guys has it and that the path there for either one of them is difficult. It's harder for Cruz than for Trump. It's impossible for Kasich. I'm sitting here thinking we're going to a contested convention in Cleveland and just wake me when we get there.
1: Trump has to get just over 50 percent of the remaining delegates. I don't think that's really a hard hill to climb. Right. Um, And, uh, you know.
2: Presumably he'll do so by not having his indicted campaign or arrested campaign manager grab any more arms. Well, right. He has to. I mean, he's got all kinds of other problems popping up that are distracting attention away from this. I can't tell whether it's good, bad or indifferent. It's, you know, it's adultery this
1: week, and then it's, you know, and then it's the campaign manager um, grabbing people, and then, you know.
2: Just as every contest is the most important contest, I always think every bit of news that comes out is the most absurd bit of news, and then Hmm. about five minutes later, something more absurd. So to my mind, my favorite bit of most absurd bit of news yesterday was that somebody created a fake Twitter account, a woman in Los Angeles who was allegedly an ESPN sports reporter. And it looked like a regular person, a real person. I mean, it had. It's a fake ESPN it's a sports fa- reporter. It's okay. a fake account, apparently. Right. But it is a it is an account created fake in the name of a woman, who is in her Twitter bio an ESPN sports reporter, and it's sort of look, you wouldn't you encounter it you don't go well this looks like a Twitter bot. Right. This looks like a real thing. This fake account yesterday tweeted, "I had an affair with Ted Cruz." Yes, I had an affair with Ted Cruz. <laughs> and so it's like. Okay, that's where. We, okay, great. This is where we are in the absurdity of this campaign. Great. I've like forgotten what the issues are. The world is blowing up, and we're talking about Corey Lewandowski grabbing that lady's arm. Right. Which is not to diminish the importance of her of him grabbing that lady's arm as a story and of John its, Kasich of its own. standing in the back going hello, hello, hello. But but <laughs> we've 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 basically frozen in place now. Stop talking about issues in this in this election. It's like all sideshow. It's all sideshow. So. Wait, like I guess say wake me when we get to Cleveland. I think we're heading for a contested convention, and there's nothing else in, in between now and then that's going to really.
0: Affect. Do we know the last time Rick Perry didn't vote in a primary or didn't cast a ballot?
2: Presumably he voted for yeah. himself. We got, so we got his. Right? We got all of his.
1: Uh, Terry got all of his travel. His travel. All of his Travis County voting records. You know, he's been a statewide office holder in Travis County for years, and he votes for every to, election. So he fair. didn't vote for Robert Morrow, presumably, either. Is I have right? a, I have a theory that, you know, he's gotten into this habit. You know, we all have our voting rituals, and Perry's voting ritual is someone in his office issues a press release, and a black suburban pulls up, and a bunch of guys with squiggly things coming out of their ears, picks him up, puts him in the van, drives him over to the Travis County courthouse, a bunch of TV cameras follow him into the booth, and he votes, and then he comes out. And And this year he didn't vote because uh, nobody showed up in the black van.
0: So this is the first time he hasn't cast a ballot and presumably, a really, really long time.
1: Right. This yeah. is the first time Rick Perry, private citizen, has uh, gone out, and it turns out he acts a lot like most private citizens <laughs> in Texas. Are we going to check on
2: everybody else who said they voted? I, I, you know, so this story comes out, and then Terry Langford sends a note. Looking for Andrew Barlow's phone number. Andrew Barlow is a person who's a spokesperson for David Dewhurst. And so I wrote her back and I said, "Wait, n- now tell me, Dewhurst didn't vote for Cruz either. Are we going to start checking? Are we going to start checking on everybody? We should do that. We yeah, could. Sounds like a good idea. Know, right? Could. Send us your proof. To, can you
1: prove that you actually voted? It sounds like it's about to be a really, really bad time to be an intern or a fellow at the Tribune, doesn't it? Here's 181 names. Call, call everyone. <laughs> Uh, so uh, we have this new uh, series out this week, Matthew. Um, attacking the University of Texas? No, not <laughs> attacking. No, you're you're talking about the. You've written a three-part series with uh, Nina Satija and a staff of thousands, a cast of thousands on uh, the top 10% rule.
3: That's right. So um, the top 10% per- rule been around for you know 20 or about 20 years, um, but coming back up. Thought, you know, is it
1: that long? God, Now yeah. I feel old. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Thanks, pal. Uh, you know, always been a controversial issue in Texas, as I'm sure you guys will agree, um, but becoming, I guess, even more controversial or important recently because of this Supreme Court case, Fisher versus U- University of Texas, um, in which kind of the future of affirmative action, at least at UT, possibly in Texas or possibly nationwide, is at stake. Um, depending on how the justices uh, vote.
1: And this this was the case where Abigail Fisher couldn't get into the law school and said uh, she was more undergrad. qualified than a similar, it was undergrad, yeah. and was more qualified, she contends, than similarly situated
3: minority students. That's right, okay. and so the basic kind of standard right now for when whether or not a university can use affirmative action, according to the Supreme Court, is you have to uh, show that there's a need, uh, an educational need, and you need to show that you've considered race-neutral alternatives, and basically have decided that you still need to consider race. And so, uh, Fisher's attorneys are making the argument that the top 10% rule, which was created after a ruling in the 90s, temporarily banned affirmative action in order to increase diversity at places like UT. Because that rule is in place, UT should not be allowed to use affirmative action. It's kind of this ironic twist in the rule, where these Hispanic lawmakers, especially Hispanic but minorities of all kinds, um, kind of came up with this idea in a panic, because they were trying to kind of save the goals of affirmative action. And now, 20 years later, their law is basically the tool being used by people trying to get rid of affirmative action.
1: Well, and the argument of the people on the Fisher side of this is that the top 10% rule is uh, substantially diversifies the student body and is proof that you don't need an affirmative action program in addition, right?
3: That's right, so the, the the whole basis of the top 10% rule is that high schools in Texas are segregated, and there's the the rich white schools, there's the Hispanic schools down the border, there's the schools in places like Dallas that have you know, a lot of African-American students, and so if you promise admission to a certain segment of each of those students at each of those schools, then you're bringing in by, a By definition,
2: group. it will diversify the student exactly
3: Exactly.
1: Um, And the underlying argument was really interesting. At the time, the school finance system was being called unconstitutional. And the state's argument in court was you get the same quality of education no matter where you're in high school in Texas. The kid in El Paso is getting the same education as Highland Park, as Amarillo, as Brownsville. And so these legislators who came up with the top 10 percent rule said, well, if that's the case, if it's the case that, you know, uh, Brownsville High is as good as Westlake – or as Highland Park, mm-hmm. then the top 10% of the kids at, at Brownsville ought
2: to get into UT. Yeah, but the law of unintended consequences, of course, is that you have some really smart kids who, under other circumstances, would have gotten into UT, who are in the 11th percent or the 12th percent at Highland Park or at Plano East or at Westlake High School, Matthew's alma mater, mm-hmm. who don't get into UT but get into Stanford. That's right. So Right? And it just seems on its face to be absurd. So we, we right. spent...
3: Uh, a pretty significant amount of time at two schools. Kind of when we were reporting this project, the uh, Highland Park mentioned before, which is the wealthy, incredibly competitive, uh, overwhelmingly white school.
1: The the stat from Highland Park in your story that really stuck out to me was that it has zero percent economically disadvantaged students.
3: That's right. You
1: know, and the average in Texas schools is around 42 percent, something like that. Mm-hmm. We
3: we spoke to a um, a senior at Highland Park who um, has on a four point scale her GPA is 4.15. She goes to 11. Yeah, <laughs> a, a slacker. Yeah, and she right. she's, classic
2: Highland Park slacker. I she, hate I hated that kid when I was in school. <laughs> <that's right. laughs> I hate that kid now. <laughs> yeah.
3: She's uh, and she's outside the top 10 percent.
2: Um, she actually ended
3: up getting into UT anyways. Um, is
2: that not just the biggest load of shit in the world though? Honestly, it's amazing. It's four point one five GPA, well, and you don't get into UT because you're outside. The, I mean, you got into UT, but she, the point is outside the top ten percent.
3: That's right. right, and there, you know, we we talked. She knew people who had gone gotten into Vanderbilt who uh, didn't get into UT. The the principal mentioned someone who gotten had gotten into Stanford, uh, who hadn't gotten into right. UT. So there's people, but I will. I, I gotta say, well, go she, to Stanford, kids. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. But but it, it, it's it's very important to note that last year. Sixty seven people from Highland Park went to UT. That's. That's that means a significant chunk of non-top 10% students got in. And that's, that's a high number for a particular high school. That's a very high number. So Brian Adams High also, School. So much for diversifying the students.
0: Were they white? UG. They were like all white? Right. Or do we know? Uh,
3: we don't have the individual demographics because there's certain it, the there's limits to what they can information they can provide us. But I mean the school is overwhelmingly white so I think it's safe to assume right. that. Diversity
2: at Highland Park <laughs> is fathers who work for different law firms, right?
3: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, so then the other high school we looked at was Brian Adams which is in East Dallas, kind of an average DISD school. Um, a lot of students, you know, I think something 70, 70-something 70 percent Hispanic, uh, less than five percent white, and uh, almost none of the kids had parents that went to college. Uh, in theory, you know, somewhere around 30 to 40 of them would automatically get into UT because of this top 10% rule, and only one
2: student ended up going to UT. So
1: if you just look at it on paper, you say that school ought to send about 30 in. Exactly.
2: So the top 10% rule is about admission, it's not about matriculation. Exactly. And it doesn't require them to go. And,
3: and right. what we we've, what we've found is that a lot of students just really don't feel like they belong at a school like UT. They, they, they see the students who are getting in. They see the kind of uh, things that they have accomplished, and they just kind of don't view themselves with that
2: group. You know what's interesting? Kia's story this week about college readiness, like the Part B of that is that you have actually this whole bunch of people who through the top 10% rule have access to college. But in fact, we just discovered, yeah. Kia, through a report to the state that our college readiness numbers kind of suck, don't they?
0: Yeah, well, the standards are... Apparently outdated, according to the Commissioner of Education and the Higher Education Commissioner. Um, So and that's the really interesting part of the the um, price of admission project to me is that these kids, you know, could go to UT and they don't. Nina was telling me that um, one kid told y'all, Austin so much is such a big city. And it's like you live in Dallas, Dallas. you know, like um, so that's just yeah, it's um, really telling
3: Yeah, and so we have a situation where the people at Highland Park um, or schools like that really dislike this rule. We have a situation where the people at UT dislike this rule for various reasons, one of which being the top 10% rule does not take into consideration SAT score at all. Which means the SAT average SAT score of incoming students is significantly lower than the schools that UT compares itself to, and there's a feeling that this law is actually keeping UT down in the national rankings.
2: What 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 percentage of total enroll this I don't remember the statistic. Maybe what percentage of total enrollees in a UT freshman class these days? Our top 10% enrollees?
3: So it's 75%. Um, that is because the the legislature has imposed a cap. Um, it used to be unlimited. And basically, if you were in the top 10%, you got in automatically. It uh, By like the late last decade, 86% of the students getting into UT were getting in for the top 10%. Basically, Bill Powers, who was president at the time, was saying, you know, we're not going to be able to let like football players into the school. Well, right, I mean, you're you're not going to be able to get... Or
2: let's be more uh, kind of elevated. Well, really good oboists. Flautists, right? I mean, that's the problem, is that you actually have... We're going to have that argument. Flutists, flautists? I'm on the the flautist end of that argument. (laughs) But the point is that the discretionary admits, Mm -hmm. where you build a class, Mm -hmm. you end up not having the flexibility to really have discretionary class building if you require the school... Even for good reasons, to take in so many kids that they only have a handful of slots remaining.
3: Mm-hmm. Right.
2: W- one other thing I want to
3: kind of note, in which is this is what part three of the story focuses on, is um, one of the kind of positive unintended consequences of this, of this law is that, it as as people have complained, you know, people who were not necessarily prepared by their high school for the rigors of UT were getting into UT which was bringing down UT's graduation rate, according to certain people in UT. Um, so you're letting people
1: in and then not ensuring their success.
3: Exactly. But but what that did, you know, at, at a lot of schools, if your graduation rate is low, the university might say, you know, we need to look at the kind of students we're letting in. UT didn't have that opportunity. So what they have done is devoted, devoted a ton of resources toward Finding out why those students aren't prepared and how can we as quickly as possible bring them up to the level as of the rest of the students. Some
1: kind of intervention early on.
3: Yeah. And and they've spent, you know, millions of dollars on this project and have actually been pretty successful. And there are people at UT who are who believe that they will have been able to raised raised their graduation rate from 52% to 70% in a span of four years. They're they're about halfway there right now. And, and but of course this
2: gets back, Kia, in your realm of uh, public education reporting to the supposed dumbing down of the standards to graduate from a couple of sessions ago, where now you have what was feared then, we haven't proven this, but you now have a bunch of kids who are getting out of high school and getting into college who need some kind of remediation because they've lowered the standards for graduation.
0: Yeah, yesterday. Um I think the stat that was thrown out in committee was something like 40% of um, a like high school students with A GPAs um, have to enter some kind of remedial, some you know um, education once they enter. If you turn it into high, middle school field day.
2: Everybody
1: education. gets a ribbon, right? That's it. So yeah, the it's So crazy. remedial yeah. means you've got to take a different writing class or a different math class or a different something or other. Yeah.
0: I think so. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it's an astounding number, um, and it shows that. Yeah, a lot of kids aren't aren't ready, even though they're taking. Um, you know, the big thing yesterday was dual credit. Kind of um, dual credit's really taking off, but um, Raymond Predis and Mike Morath both said um, we're not ensuring that these are actually college level courses. So um, you're getting
1: college credits so for courses that aren't necessarily college material. Yeah,
0: and then uh, Senator Charles Perry was like, you know, said, "Yeah, I'm having parents complain about higher ed- education institutions not taking." The credit, you know. So these kids have, like, you know, they're having to take these classes twice. Right. They think they're getting credit, and they're not. Um, Remember so, that
2: the yeah. public ed commissioner at the time, Michael Williams, the higher ed commissioner at the time, who still is Ray Paredes, and the chair of the workforce commission all opposed the legislation two sessions ago that re- reduced the standards, fearing this exact consequence or some version of it.
0: Right. Yeah, and these two
2: stories really do dovetail. Yeah, yeah I, they do. I think yeah. one of the
3: things that I took away from just doing the reporting on this series is that you see, like. I mean, this is something that's happening on a lot of college campuses right now. People complaining about the schools not being representative of the states or the country, and you know, uh, minority students uh, not feeling comfortable on campus and things like that. And the colleges are getting a lot of blame for this, but it really seems like this is something that this is a problem by the time the students are reaching college. And if you're really wanting to increase accessibility and have people succeed in college, you need the people of the K through 12 the schools at the K through 12 level to be doing a better job.
0: Yeah, and there's a fundamental, you know, disagreement obviously about how to tell whether kids are college ready if it's through testing. I mean, uh, Commissioner Paredes, obviously yesterday there was kind of boos in the room when he said you know, people m- might not oppose tests so much if their kids were doing better on them and everyone was like, ooh, it was like fighting words, you know. Um, <laughs>
1: things, you, things you can't say out loud,
0: right? Yeah.
2: Paredes, like President Obama, may be in the IDGAF yeah. time in office. I have right? something that rhymes with a bucket list. Yeah. 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 Wow. Well, um, so we have an event tomorrow. If people are listening to this on Wednesday, we'll be over at Austin Community College uh, Highland Campus tomorrow. The artist formerly
1: known as Dillard's
2: Right. <laughs> I, I think Dillard's would be an improvement I think, mall. I think we're going last to be in the, ar- the, in the in Orange still- Julius Kiosk <laughs> in the middle of the mall We were in the um, former
1: men's department last time They still had the mirrors on true. the columns check
2: uh, We have uh, John Zerwas and Donna Howard The chair and vice chair of the Higher Education Committee of the Texas House And Larry Faulkner who was president of UT Austin When the top 10% rule went in to effect And Paul Cruz who is the superintendent Of Austin ISD uh, On this panel I'll get the opportunity to moderate Piggybacking on uh, Matthew and Nina's uh, Good work and um, we'll talk more about this tomorrow and right. live stream it if you're not there.
1: So Kia, while you have, when you're not reporting on public education, you've kind of turned into our Minister of Water here at the Tribune. The latest is the, um, I guess you started with the Surge Project in Houston and went um, all the way through leaded water and now uh, the <laughs> San Antonio's Ars- latest... Arsenic and water,
0: actually. Arsenic and water.
1: And now <laughs> yeah. San Antonio's latest attempts to get um, water to the people who live in San Antonio.
0: Yeah, it's, um, there's been a development in the Vista Ridge saga um, that's you know, um, it's, Can you give it's us a
1: quick brief on the Vista Route saga.
0: Sure, yeah. Um, so it's been in the works for several years now. It's a 142 mile pipeline that uh, the city of San Antonio um, contracted with uh, the Spanish company to build, and it's a massive pipeline. It will go from like north east of Austin down to San Antonio, and there's been a lot of controversy surrounding it. Um, The latest development is that um, Abengoa, well, it's really a subsidiary of Abengoa that contracted with the city, Um, but the parent company, Abengoa is basically struggling to avoid bankruptcy, and that's been going on for for a while now. Their financial situation has just gone out of control. And um, last week, I guess they announced that the primary construction contractor Um, was going to take over, had bought like 80% of the project from Abengoa, and um, why that matters I guess is um, that the main selling point for Vista Ridge was, it's really complicated, (laughs) so (laughs) um, anyway, the main selling point of of Vista Ridge was that it's a really risky project, and Abengoa is going to assume all that risk in the event that the water doesn't come through, Um, and Prior, prior to the announcement with Abengoa's financial situation, it was really unclear what was going to happen. Um, they had applied for a low-interest loan from the Water Development Board to finance it, so there was questions about whether the city was going to take it over and thus assume all that risk. Um, and uh, so this latest announcement is like whoa okay you know so, it, it's happening
1: so maybe there's the financial backing and the financial strength in this thing to get this thing
0: right garney it's garney, already under
1: it's already underway right uh, they're building
0: preliminary preliminary yeah um and so garney construction this kansas city based construction firm has agreed to assume all the risk and so it's kind of like you know robert puente is like you know kind of i don't know there was an former editorial.
1: rep now head of sauce right,
0: right exactly the head of the city's water utility is you know it's good for him I mean the project is moving forward this is, this is our
2: future is it not <laughs> limited resources yeah uh, of, a, of a, so, a physical infrastructure resources water would be one of those weird physical infrastructure and also limited financial resources right these p3 projects, where public entities have to partner with private firms to take the responsibility, assume the risk, and put money in a a till to solve problems that all of us grew up thinking were the responsibility of
0: government. Vista Ridge has gotten a lot of attention because it's, I mean, it's... I need to look into this, but it might be the most like massive scale water municipal water project that's ever happened it's in the state. The Roman state. aqueducts
1: all over again. Right?
0: right, it's incredible. It's 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 um, 142 miles, and you know, um, there's a lot of questions about whether legitimate questions about whether that water is gonna gonna come through. So everyone's watching it pretty closely in the water community to see what what happens, and it'll be interesting to see if you know
2: San Antonio is always a great city to to think about in terms of water because they've had
1: decades and decades and decades of water fights in San Antonio and actually
2: to their credit they've also done as well as any big urban area in terms of making conservation part of the of the portfolio of of ways to deal with a limited resource and they've actually kind of come back around to a a reasonably good place until recently, right?
0: Well, that's one of the many reasons that environmentalists don't like this project is there's a question about whether San Antonio will need all that water, what it's gonna do if it doesn't need all the water, um, and you know, um, so yeah, and whether it's gonna be cut off from even getting the water if it impacts the aquifer. Is anybody
1: um, even venturing a
2: timeline on this?
0: They're supposed to deliver start water delivery by 2020, and Garney says that they're still on track to do that. Look, we had census numbers come out
2: last uh, week that indicated that uh, a number of the big metros in Texas, including the Austin-San Antonio corridor— Which is now like
1: one big metro. —are growing
2: faster than almost any other place in the whole country. Um, If the bet here is that uh, increased population in that corridor is going to in turn result in greater need for water, among other— uh, resources, uh, it's probably a pretty good bet. Um, we can't make it rain, as much as we might like to. And in yeah. the absence of being able to make rain materialize from the heavens, we have to make mater- water materialize from the ground. Right. Right. I mean, we know what the what the options are here, and we also know that again, from a financial resources standpoint, look what we had to do to create the swift mechanism two sessions ago, just to get some money in the in the pot to. Fund many of these projects. There's not enough money, and there's not enough water to go around. That's for sure.
0: Yeah, this is the first of many, many, many water fights um, in the state. The big metros, the drought's over, but the big metros of the state
2: are going to be having a version of this conversation. Which is why the San Antonio situation is so important. In some ways, they're modeling the behavior for the fights that are to come elsewhere.
0: And yeah, every big city is looking for water right now, except except for Austin, I would say. Um, You know, every city is scrambling to secure. It's water future. We have other problems.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Austin, <laughs> Austin will be certainly at some point.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, that's about all our time. If you have questions or comments, email them to tripcast at texastribune.org. You can also sign up for tripcast alerts at texastribune.org slash tripcast. We'd like to thank Shiny Ribs for doing our music on behalf of Evan, Kia, Matthew, and our producer, Todd. This is Ross. Thanks for listening. Texas talking.
0: See
1: you it's low energy, man. It's the Jeb Bush Takes <laughs> the <laughs>